Before we begin, a disclaimer. This podcast is for information only. I am not a mental health or medical professional, nor are my guests unless otherwise stated. My guests and I do not speak for or represent any recovery programs or workshops. I do not sell ads on this podcast, and I do not make any money from it. And finally, I want to warn you that some episodes may contain content about emotional, physical, and sexual abuse, which some listeners may find triggering or dysregulating. Hello, and welcome to the Loving Parent Podcast. If you're new here, this is where we explore the ideas of becoming our own loving parents and reparenting our trauma to build resilience. If you've been here before, welcome back. My name is Brita, and I'm your host. Join me now as I welcome Christy back to the podcast. We're going to pick up right where we left off in the last episode. So what brought you to addiction recovery? Well, funny thing, I got a job at that treatment center. <laughs> oh. so, you know, at 21, I, I was a failing student at ASU trying to get my shit together. So it must have been on a phase where I was like not drinking. And they hired college students to kind of work on the child and adolescent units. And my stepsister had gotten a job there. And I had had a job at a recovery, like a residential home for children that closed. Mm. And a lot of those kids actually actually went to St. Luke's. And so my sister like told me about that and I applied and got the job. And I remember being really scared because I was like, I don't remember the last time I'd gotten high. I couldn't remember. Right. And I was pretty sure that they maybe in the drug test, it would show up, but it didn't. I got the job. And I kind of like was around, it wasn't, it wasn't a long-term recovery home. It was a high acuity place hospital. So like we just housed kids that were in high need and then placed them. So I never really saw recovery, but I was around a couple of counselors that had recovery. Mm. So I was kind of getting the recovery lingo and my mom had gone to recovery too when I was 16. So things were a little bit okay for a brief period of time because she realized she grew up in alcoholism and dysfunction and Mm -hmm. the adult children world had taken off in the eighties. Right. right? And so she started going. So I had this, you know, idea and I had, she got, she did talk my aunt into going to AA her Mm -hmm. older sister. And I went to one meeting with her when I was 15. So there was kind of like this bouncing around me. You know, and I think society was starting to look at that. I was working at the treatment center, but then I was living with a guy that was not, he was from a very nice family. So, but he was drilling drugs, you know, and Mm. he was living with heroin addicts. And here I was going to the treatment center and then coming home to this. It was just a matter of time. I wanted to get better. I didn't want to keep living this life. I was done. And I had a couple moments of clarity. I remember standing in this dive bar with him and I looked around and said, I just can't be with these soulless people anymore. Like I just am around like, and I don't believe people are soulless, but it, that was like the message that came to me at the time. Like, right. Dead, you know, people who are, had, had right. like, frozen off. They were like zombies, you know? Mm-hmm. And he looked at me, he goes, oh, they're my friends. <laughs> and I, and I started like wanting to get quit drinking and again, and, he didn't yeah. want to. And so he had basically dumped me, you know, and I was mm-hmm. devastated because he was like who I thought I'd marry. And, 
you know, he didn't, we, you know, just, it got very complicated. And so I tried to get him sober. I thought yeah. if I could get him sober and he could quit drinking, he was drinking a lot more than I was at the time. Cause I was on my, I'd go on these bin, you know, I'd do my quit drinking and I convinced myself that I was doing okay. And I went to the national council for alcoholism and talked because mm. I had learned that, I guess, at St. Luke's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I sat down with this guy and he had eight years sober. And I told him all about my boyfriend that needed to get sober. And, and he just <laughs> said, oh, well, what you need to do is if you want to do an intervention, I was going to do an intervention yeah. with his family. That was my plan. And he said, we can discuss that. But what you need to do is if you really love him and you really want to help him, then you need to go to the family program for two weeks right. and not drink. Mm. And I did that and it was very painful. I didn't, I was just not, I'm trying not to drink and listening to, you know, the family disease mm-hmm. being talked about, which you didn't talk about when I, before someone from, you know, the t- original 12 step program came in and was like, you know, here's what you got to do. You got to do the steps and nah, nah, nah. And so I basically kind of went to the other program and realized, oh yeah, like he, this guy, I talked with a couple of people like, yeah, normal girls aren't like doing Coke with uh-huh. drug dealers at 14. You know what I mean? Like I kind right. of took that. I took those years between 13 and 16 and put them away. Yeah. I put my, that part of me, I just shoved away. And that's kind of mm-hmm. what I, my, the message my mother gave me when I said I needed right. help. Okay, right. We're just not going to talk about those years, except for if they flare up, they're your problem. Right. Well, and that's developmentally appropriate. You know, people in their early 20s, even into early 30s, are supposed to be outwardly focused, Mm -hmm. learning about the world, Mm -hmm. maybe developing a career. And introspection is not something that that age brain wants to do. So that was probably developmentally appropriate for you to do that. Right. But it was eating at me, you know, it was making my, so all all of it was making my uh, young adult life very difficult. I wasn't getting through school. I had a lot Mm -hmm. of low self-esteem. I couldn't show up. I couldn't commit. I couldn't, I couldn't, I was, you know, choosing to be with people that didn't want to be with me. I was like, you know, I was just a mess. I felt like my life, I was so exhausted by the time I was 23. And I was yeah. in so much emotional pain. And I right. knew, I knew there was a better way to live than the way I was taught. I just knew that, you know, mm-hmm. and I just remember saying like, okay, God, if you're there, I don't even know if you exist, you know, like, yeah. but I, I'm willing to do anything not to live like this anymore. Like, right. I, you've got to show me a better way to live. Like, there, you know, and I remember that. And then, you know, pretty quick after that is when I met you know, the first person in the first 12 step mm-hmm. program. And I was doing Al-Anon at that time. And I, that was it. Like once I stepped yeah. in, I just felt so relief that yeah. I knew, like, I don't have to live like this anymore. Yeah. I and know, I was I in the same way. I, I got in through the adult children recovery program and then realized that I couldn't possibly be the only person in my family who drank the way I did, who wasn't an alcoholic. And that's right. how I ended up going to addiction recovery as well. Yeah. It's, a, yeah. it's amazing when you're, the light comes on on that. Oh, yeah. You know, it's just like, what? And yeah. at the time, the way my family viewed th- this was that the only people that were showing any signs of being affected were the alcoholics or the people doing drugs. They didn't consider. So the non-alcoholics, the dysfunctional side, the dysfunctional people in right. the family, they were fine. Yeah. 
So that was kind of the message I took. And I believe that for years in my recovery too. Yeah. You know, I, and, 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 you know, if I just, you know, if I just stay sober and I just keep working my steps and I try to be a family member among family members, mm-hmm. this all should work out. I really was the problem. You know, I really did. I, I lied all the time and I did. There was lots of, I did all this stuff. And over a period of time of being in recovery, my relationship with the dysfunctional people in my family got worse and worse. Yeah. They didn't like that I was getting healthy. Right. They would, you changed they wanted, the whole dynamic. <laughs> yeah. And, and when I would get together with them, a lot of talk would come up around when I was between 13 and 16. It would always oh. be brought up. There was a lot they of- They were trying me. to pull you back mm-hmm. into it. Right. So it didn't matter if I was, you know, completely living a different life. I mean, I had moved to right. California, stayed sober, you know, got therapy, was doing really well, got back into school, graduated San Diego State, had a really nice sober boyfriend at the time, like living my life of my dreams, living by the beach, like right. all, everything, you know, the alcoholics in the family that didn't want to get sober. Well, they were just like, yeah, a few, we're going to go over here and drink and die. And then, you know, yeah. the, but the dysfunctional people who I would call like the overachievers and the, um, and my, the narcissist, my mom, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't about her anymore. So your relationship with your mom never really did get any better. Oh no, it's, it got worse. It just continued to get worse. Yeah. The, the healthier I got or the, um, it got worse. And then when we had, you know, you know, my wedding, our wedding was so like, we had a rule that anything that caused stress had to go, Yeah, you know, and I remember there was one point, at one point, you know, we, we had to figure out my husband grew up in, by the beach and there was a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So we decided to do our wedding kind of a flip flop, which I loved because it was yeah. like anyone, anyone could come to the beach for the ceremony. We figured, right. we believe the ceremony was the most important part. We really geared it around ourselves mm-hmm. and not anybody else. And that really upset my mother because, oh, you know, she has her plans for me, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it was really a lot of work to do that, but we did a really good job at one point. I told her she could bring as many people as she wants to the beach, but we were going to have a small reception at my mother-in-law's after that was only family mm-hmm. and a few friends that flew in. Yeah. And she couldn't deal with that. She goes, well, I'm going to have my own reception. I go, well, we're not coming. Oh. <laughs> we're not coming to your reception for our wedding. We're having our own over here. You know, so it was just always a battle. It just was always a battle for, and then when my son was born, our son was born, it was even, oh, you know, cause he was hers and like, you yeah. know, it just was her really grandson. tough. Yeah. Yeah. And my aunt, her youngest sister, basically we had a very triangulated, unhealthy dynamic because she was a she was like a rescuer my aunt was between both of us if my mom wanted me to do something that I didn't want to do she would call my aunt my aunt would try to you know either either uh tell my mom like that's way out of line or try to convince me to just can you just bend a little bit so that we can all deal with her yeah and then on you know my end when my mom was completely out of line and I can't get her out of my circle and space my aunt would step in and be able to, you know, and I think that was very damaging for her. Oh gosh. Um, yeah. Horribly down. And I tried to change that when I realized after being in the family, cause you know, this is a family disease. I just oh, do yeah. not, like you just said, you know, like the longer I was in recovery, the more I could see how sick we were. And it was mm-hmm. really challenging and has been really challenging to be there and watch it. And I, did the steps in the family, you know, the, the family program. And I went to make amends to my aunt. I've made, two, I made two amends to her that she rejected. 
And oh. um, she did not want them. She wanted yeah. to keep the role that she was in and me the role I was in. But the second amends I made to her, I was about this triangulation. I said, you know, mm-hmm. this is just really unhealthy. And I, I can't, I can't, you know, when I was a kid, I was a kid. I can't, I couldn't help that, but I can right. as an adult. And yeah. I don't want to do this anymore. And she said, I can't have a relationship with you then. Oh. She's like, if you're not going to, you know, I can't do that. I can't have a separate relationship with you than your mom. Mm. And so our relationship at that point, I think my son was about three. I was really identifying. My therapist was helping me identify my mother's narcissism. And I was setting some very healthy boundaries, but it was really upsetting them. Yeah. And it, it really changed my relationship with my aunt. Yeah. So did you ever cut off contact with them altogether? So... I had to cut off contact completely with my mom. I had to be very specific with her and her and with, as with most narcissists, they demand loyalty. And she did this when she left my dad and she did. So like when she left my dad, she demanded that her family not have a relationship with him, which is impossible, right? Cause we're all going to weddings and you know, all this stuff together, but right. And her sister's, like would never like ever not be loyal to her no matter how mm-hmm. horrible she was to them so yes i didn't cut contact with the rest of my mom's family i cut contact with my mom and mm-hmm. those who have decided to stay loyal to her and see me as it as you know wrong right. our relationships have have been damaged and that was what i saw happening with my dad as well But it's not a two-way street for her. My mom can have, my mom can be completely engaged in any, like, you know, the the rules don't apply to her the other way. Um, Well, she doesn't respect your boundaries. Oh, no, she doesn't respect anybody's boundaries, for sure. My grandmother was the only one that she would not, you know, and I didn't actually, I went low contact with my mom before my grandmother died because it would, Mm -hmm. it would, I just would not, and you know. My mom and my was helping my grandmother so much that I I had to like have some contact to be able to right. see my grandmother. And then after my grandmother died, it was very clear that I could cut all contact with her. And right. very rare, like we've had a few moments where we've my son has wanted her in our life or wanted her to come to a graduation or wanted to or when her younger sister died. You know, I went because I'm close to one of her kids. You know, yeah, but we're we're very much no contact again. Okay, so I want to move into your adult child recovery and find out what you've learned about yourself. Maybe what some of the tools are that you've used in this process, and some of the authors or speakers that have really meant something to you and opened your eyes to certain aspects of your recovery. Yeah, well, in the last, you know. 27 years that I've been in recovery altogether, like a lot Mm -hmm. has changed. I feel like it's just like, wow, you know, early on, I think writing has been a big, big part. It continues in my life, but I've written poetry and I'm a songwriter. I've recorded music. Like all of that was very important in my early recovery. And I, you know, feel like dance has always been movement has always been a big part. Actually dance saved my life when I was Mm. a teenager. I only went to dance. Like that was the only class when the worst of my life was going on, you know, 13 to 16 that I would attend and Uh I would go to. And now we know, 
now we know like on how the brain oh, works. Yeah. You were totally it, trying to regulate. <laughs> yes. I didn't know that then, but that's what was happening. It was the only yeah. time I could get regulated. Yeah. And so dances and movement has been a big part of my life and, and music. Yoga now, I think is a big, is a, a, currently working very well for me, but I would say, you know, like it's been a progression of like how, what we've learned too, what we've been offered, you know, right. the steps have always been consistently from day one, meetings yes. consistently from day one. Those are my core. After yeah. a while, like I needed outside, outside of help of the 12 step right. programs. I needed very specific therapists that understood narcissism. I'm grateful for the two therapists that we've had that have understood that to help me guide me into some of the work of reading up on it. Now there's so mm-hmm. much information about it. When I started, Stop Walking on Eggshells was like the only book out that was like anywhere. And that was for borderline um, personality disorder, which is different. Now there's a lot more out. There's a counselor, Ross Rosenberg, who does a lot of good work on YouTube. So I feel like it's all, there's so much now. Like if I were getting sober now, (laughs) it would Mm -hmm. just be like, wow. Like you could, I mean, I just think it's like we've had a quantum leap. Yes, I feel like in recovery. And I think the neuro, you know, the book, um, The Body Keeps the Score, which came out in 2014, like changed Mm -hmm. me. Yeah. The ACE study that uh, Dr. Mm -hmm. Folletti has done at the Kaiser, at Kaiser here in San Diego, which I find fascinating. I know um, my husband was actually a part of that. Oh, he was. I didn't know that. Yeah, he was. Yeah. He didn't realize it either at the time. He was just filling out questionnaires. But yeah, he was a significant part of that study, I'm sure. I mean, and, and anybody listening to this, I, I, I think it's worth Googling the ACE study oh, and yes. taking the quiz because it's new. This is still, I, I, you know, I wrote Dr. Folletti an email in 2015 yeah. <laughs> because there, um, I was struggling. You know, here I was sober quite mm-hmm. a long time and a lot of this, I call it the defrosting and it's not just me. I think a lot of recovery talks yes. about this. I, about 20 years into recovery, all of this stuff from my childhood, like there's telling the story and then there's feeling the story. Yes. And, you know, I come from, I'm kind of feel like I'm generationally on this, like between two worlds where I grew up, where you, you weren't allowed to feel right. that, you know, feeling and, and child abuse was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh yeah. You know, um, one of our favorite authors, we always talk about Alice Miller for your own yes. good, like talks yes. about like child rearing, like all of that is shifting. But I grew up with people who that it, even though my parents didn't hit me, their, their way of child rearing was very abusive and it was yeah. okay. That was like, there's, there's still residuals of it now, but it was like, oh, but that's just how you raise kids. Now, like all of that starts defrosting and at about 20 years, you know, sober, you know, this is defrosting this ACE, I get introduced to this ACE study and it's adverse childhood experiences. Right. right? I was oh, just going to say, we need to identify what <sighs> yeah. that is. Yeah. I mean, what, it, how beautiful could right. you say it like that? Because if they said uh-huh. child abuse, oh, it would, no one would take it. No, right? nobody no one, would even no pay attention. Yeah. But adverse childhood experiences and really collecting it. And I love the fact that it was done through the obesity clinic um, mm-hmm. at Kaiser because they really were watching people come in who were obese having lap band surgeries or going through all of the work it takes to like have to lose weight. And just like using drugs and alcohol, food, it can be that. 
Oh, yeah. I've used food over my I have life too. too, where it's just so painful. You don't even know you're doing it. It's just like mm-hmm. you're dull. You need to dull the pain of those yeah. adverse childhood experiences. So I emailed Dr. Folletti saying, I, you know, here you do this A study and our therapist had died. So like the mm, therapist right. we were working with had died. He was older. And I went to Kaiser because we had Kaiser therapy, you know, insurance. We still do. Yes. And their therapist, I I am blown away at this point still that Kaiser's psychiatry does not link with the ACE study. It just doesn't. Yeah. And it's very frustrating. And so they wanted to do this really, I mean, I was so far beyond what they were offering. I'm like, oh yeah, this isn't going to work. So I emailed Dr. Folletti. I'm like, I can't understand this is what's going on. Like, And he sent me, you know, to a therapist that did hypnotherapy that he said worked really well. And then another therapist that did EMDR, which did not yes. work for me. This is not work for me. And um, mm-hmm. we found another therapist, but it was just, yeah, the body keeps the score you know, trauma is stored in our bodies. And when right. we learn that, oh gosh, like this is so important for addiction recovery, because I feel like I've come so close to relapsing. There's a joke that we used to say, you know, eat before you smoke, smoke before you drink, drink, uh-huh. before, you, drink before you kill yourself. Right. And I've gotten very close to like, I think when I sent him that email, I wasn't thinking of killing myself, but I was like, I don't want to eat. I don't want to smoke. I don't want to drink. I don't want to die. I want to live Uh a better life. Right. Yes. And we have now some tools to do that. The, the new adult children literature that's out is amazing. My, I do a, uh, a weekly group with a couple other gals who have also been in addiction recovery for a long time. One's a therapist and the other, it works in recovery. She mm-hmm. runs a recovery program. And we all agree that the adult children literature is the missing piece of our recovery yes. so far. Yes. Yeah. I always tell people it's grad school, you know, addiction recovery, you get your bachelor's degree. It, it's a lot of work. It takes time. Mm-hmm. And then for the people who are ready, you can come to adult children recovery and this is grad school. And if you thought the other stuff was work, well, guess what? This is harder even, I think. Yes. And you, it is harder. And I think the um, number one trick to it mm-hmm. is finding all the right support. Yes. And I think that it encompasses everything we're talking about, right? So like having a really good group, whether that's a, a meeting like I do once a week with these two gals, right. um, a really good therapist that understands at the, either the ACE study, adverse childhood mm-hmm. experiences and trauma and addiction, if that's what someone's looking at. Also having some like of the relief, like uh, yoga, right? Mm -hmm. Yoga for me working with, there's so much stuff now, like they're called TRE exercises um, where you've stored trauma in your body and you can release it. Understanding just the nerve, you know, my therapist I'm working with now, and we're just really focusing a lot on being for me, being able to recognize when I'm in my, you know, what's what, if I'm entering into fight or flight, because I live yes. so much in the fight. Like, I mean, this is what everyone's talking about stress, right? Stress, stress, yes. stress, stress, stress. I lived in such a world of stress. That's a big reason I'm no contact with my mother. Yes. The stress level is so high for me that it physically affects me in a negative way. And it's yeah. dangerous for me. Oh, yeah. 
So we know that now being able to understand like the polyvagal nerve, right? Which is mm-hmm. like what we talk, we're like trying to get into you know, why we hear meditation is so important. I'm not a sit still person. Mm-hmm. So sitting and meditating doesn't always work for me. I have to move. So right. like dance, 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 yeah. yoga, you know, singing. I have given myself the assignment that try to sing three songs every day and dance mm-hmm. to two, to three songs every day. Oh, excellent. Um, I love that. Yeah, whether it's in my car or at home or whatever, like just to try to to get that per- that part to where I know what it feels like to be in that yeah, calm. to be regulated exactly. Regulated, yeah, that's the word regulated. And I yeah. think that was the word that came to me through Dr. Bruce Perry's book, which yes. is "What Happened to You," which is also revolutionary right now. Yes, that we're trying to regulate. And when right. we're around people who are very dysregulated, but we don't know how to regulate really well, then we can mm-hmm. get dysregulated with them. And that is what has happened with my family. Right. I could not stay regulated yeah. around them. Well, and, and the research is showing that the best way to get regulated is rhythm. So yes. whether it's through dance, whether it's just through patting a child, you know, anything that's rhythmic can soothe mm-hmm. that stress response system in our brains and our bodies and help us get calm again, get regulated. Yes. And I want to say one more thing about that with regulation that came to mm-hmm. me that I've read a lot more, you know, having a mom that is does have narcissistic personality disorder, mm-hmm. which has, you know, there's there's a lot of understanding that goes into that. And I'm not going to say that I believe that narcissists can't get help because I, I'm so I think we're so in the beginning of understanding so much of this that there may yes. be hope for the narcissists as well. But I know that at this point in time, it's a healthy person who is able to regulate when they are in the presence of somebody who's very narcissistic and has a narcissistic personality disorder. The first thing they're going to feel is irritation. They're going to sense that something's not right. Mm-hmm. And the best way currently to regulate is to remove yourself from them. Right. It's yeah. almost impossible to stay around someone who is that, that needed. That toxic. To just, yeah. That toxic. So there's always this pressure for a certain period of time, but it takes so much energy. Yeah. And that's right. It's, and that's the part that for each individual to know, because I think that was a part of my recovery that took a long time when I was, you know, and that was not known, you know, this is a lot of, this is new information on narcissism. I guess we can thank some of our politicians right now for that because we've, (laughs) you know, the last like four years, five years, there's been a lot of research and books written on it, understanding it for the, that it's not like if I go regulate myself, then I should, the the, the message always got is if I could just work hard enough on myself, that I should be able to tolerate my mother. And that's just not true because it's not, it's not just me. There are sometimes people who are just absolutely too toxic mm-hmm. to be able to reg- stay regulated around, you know? Yeah. And I just wanted to make that clear. <laughs> yeah. I think that's really important. So at this point, you have no contact with your mother. We don't have any contact with her. And it's, right. um, you know, one of those kind of things that's tricky with having a son because this is his family. We're not sure how we're going to 
continue. He's, he's, you know, going to be 16 in a week. He's getting older. He does understand that she does have narcissistic personality disorder. Our therapist that we all see is very good and has been able to explain a lot in a kind way to him. You know, I don't like to, I don't want to make anybody evil, you know, right. I, I've, as as appropriate as I can share with him, like why she might be the way she is, you right. know, is important. And I know like she grew up with a dad that was, you know, an army sergeant for 20 years in the U S army. He's born in Germany, a German man. There's a lot that Alice Miller talks about. Yes. The, the poisonous pedagogy of the German culture, yes. child raising, you know, so she, she, really, I think had it, you know, this was how she survived. You had to show you can't feel anything. And God forbid you show you feel anything, you know, no grief, grief just wasn't allowed like grief and feeling any like sad, like it was like, you couldn't do that. You just get annihilated. So, but it makes for growing and recovery very difficult. So she never see, you know, it's just a lot to try to be around her. Yeah. So going forward in your recovery, where do you see some of your next growth areas? Oh, you know, it's it's kind of a blank slate going forward a little bit. I'm hoping to get back into music. I'm, I'm, my One of my favorite things to do is to record songs and music. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the music that I did was like part of my story and recovery. And I didn't know at the time I was doing that, oh. you know. And so I'm kind of now interested in to see what would come out in that. I've considered going back to school, not sure what I want to do, but I, this, this trauma recovery is just, I feel like I, it's such a calling for me. And I just don't know, you know, I'm like, I don't know if I want to do like dance therapy, music therapy, art therapy, mm-hmm. you know, those are all the things that I, you know, writing therapy. So I, you know, I don't know, I'm, I'm in a spot where I'm trying to kind of there's a new me emerging, <laughs> you know, yes. that wasn't what, and, and it's like me, right. And how uh-huh. I am fitting in. And I think I still attend meetings in, you know, my uh, original program that I'm very yes. grateful for and trying to bridge that quite a bit with, I, I really love the new girls that come in. I go to a recovery home yes. once a month and they're all under 25 getting sober and they already have a lot of this lingo you know they already know about trauma they already know they've gone through recovery homes like it's just like so different now than it was so just continuing with that and just continuing to reparent myself too while I'm parenting my son I got a you know a few more years with him yeah he's been my greatest teacher oh Definitely. Um, I've said that all along. My kids have always been my greatest teachers and now my grandchildren. (laughs) Yeah. And there's going to be more, I'm sure there will be more, but just trying to be less judgmental of myself because, you know, my current program is really letting my son be him Mm -hmm. and not, you know, it's really, there's a lot of pressure to make your kid perform here. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And letting him make some of his own decisions and but mistakes. Also, and mistakes and be here for him, but not to the point where, you know, he's like, you know, going off the cliff. It's uh right. 
And by doing that, I have to like feel through my story at that age, you know, so he's 15. So I'm feeling those old feelings sometimes of being 15, which is really cool. And he knows he's even said, I'm not like, you know, being very, very conscious of not Uh projecting my life onto him. And that's also very hard, like not trying to be overprotective of him. I remember when one of my kids, I I was trying so hard to get him to talk to me because I was not allowed to talk. You know, I was never encouraged to tell anything. And finally, he, he would not talk. He was just clammed up. And finally, he said, I know that talking was something you really wanted when you're a kid, but I'm not you. And that's not what I want. So please leave me alone. And I thought, what a wise little person. And he was like eight years old. Oh, it's amazing. I know. And after I got over the shock, I patted myself on the back because I thought I could never have said that to one of my parents. And he felt safe to say that to me. And I really patted myself on the back for that one. Oh, yeah. And isn't that true? Like we think that they're like the opposite. Uh That's that's the trick, right? Like, I just need to like, listen to him. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So that's like a big practice for me right now is just trying to listen to him. But it's work because I have to sometimes sort through my own Mm -hmm. stuff, you know, so that's where writing really comes in. And of course, therapy, you know, our therapist is really helpful to help us organize that because my son, my husband grew up very much similar to that. Uh You know, he he had no help at 15, right? No guidance at 15. Yeah. Right. So you can't over guide just because you yeah. have no guidance, you know, or exactly guide him in a direction that he doesn't want to go. Right. You know, God, it's really, I feel like I'm on a, and, and, you know, being able to chat with you and have people in front of us that have done this before is also very important. I can't keep yes. going to my family for help. If they're going to teach me the dysfunction, right. I have to go to people who've changed like you who are ahead of us and some of the other women that I've gone to. And my husband has the same thing with men in his life. Yes. Like, how have yes. you done it different? And that's really humbling to do. And that's also like very in- intimate and connecting. And it's a whole new way of living that I think more and more of us are learning how to do. Right. To me, that's one of the biggest parts of reparenting is building a support system. And I also want to say, too, before we end this, that one of the other books that has been very helpful, Brita, has been yours. Um, It's Never Too Late to Be a Happy Child. That age-appropriate development that you Mm -hmm. talk about and the praise and the things that kids need. Because if you don't get it, you don't know what to give, right? Yeah. And so I have felt very blessed. I get, I feel like I get to have you and the book, which is so, it's just such a treat. Right. And then, you know, and then my, the girls I work with, I always, you know, that, you know, I'll share with them what's in your book. And it's like, I like, I, I know I told you that one of the other women, the both of the other women I'm doing this step work with right now have little ones, you know, Yes. they don't have teenagers. And so little ones like one and two and like two and five, you know, and right. And they're teaching them how to express their feelings, right? They learn that from your book. (laughs) So well, how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just mention here that I have found several more cases of the book and I will make them available. I'll put something in the podcast notes about how to access that. I attempt to do everything free of charge. So if there's a way I can get a book to you, I will try to do that. All of you listeners, anybody who wants one. I think that's all the time we have for this episode. I really appreciate your being with us and telling your story. It's 
it's unique, and yet, unfortunately, it's not in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important for people to hear where you've been and the amazing amount of recovery that you've put together in your adult life. So thank you very much for sharing that with us. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me, Brita. My pleasure. Thanks for joining me for this episode. It was produced by me, Brita Firm, and edited by Vaughn David. Our music is by Emmanuel Wilde. If you like what you heard, please leave a positive review and tell a friend. Also, tap subscribe and notifications so you won't miss a single episode. Remember, as you walk your reparenting path, you can take your time. You deserve all the love you want, and my love goes with you.